had sent this. And this morning we're gonna um, we're gonna start probably in First Corinthians. <clears throat> the the title this morning is Builders in the Building. You can only imagine what inspired that. But I want to read you something that I think sets the tone for the right kind of heart that we should have this morning. Where to set all this stuff? Yeah, this Brad Lively. He wrote this, and he wrote it to me, and it's not uh, real polished. At least for Brad, it's polished for what most people would write. But um, the I think you'll get the the message. So I don't know whether you need to close your eyes to hear this or what, but do whatever it takes to get this message. Because if we didn't, if I didn't preach at all and all you did was hear this, this is worthwhile. It says, All who are called to walk down the narrow way do not choose to do so. Many approach the entrance to the narrow way, but go no further. The gate that stands before them is rugged and bloody, and it has no beauty or majesty to draw men to it. This unmovable gate that guards the entrance to the narrow way declares the message of sacrifice and great loss. But hidden behind this gate is immeasurable glory and honor for those who are willing to pay the price. So threatening is the message proclaimed by the gate that many hold their ears and scream so they will not hear the message and be held accountable for it. The mere sight of the gate is so frightening that to most who gaze upon it, that any thought of reward flees like a vapor in the wind. Those who are ruled by their natural instincts and who live according to what they see and hear will in no way desire this path that lies before them. The fear of insecurity rises up within them as they contemplate losing control of their destiny and handing it over to the gatekeeper. Those who find the entrance to the narrow way become uncomfortably aware that not many others are accompanying them through the gate. As they approach the gatekeeper, they notice that there is no monetary fee to enter through the narrow way and that they are filled with that. They are filled with joy and relief momentarily. The brief excitement that they feel is replaced with a deep sorrow as they watch those entering before them doing so or doing something that very few choose to do. It is usually at this point that most people will turn around and run with all of their heart to the path that lies opposite the narrow way. The path that is opposite the narrow way is known as the Broadway. The Broadway is adorned with beautiful architecture and is scented with the most beautiful fragrance. When you approach the gate of the Broadway, there are many who greet you and praise you for your talents and natural abilities. In the crowd of people surrounding the Broadway, it is easy to find comfort and security. After all, everybody is doing it. Enticed by your senses, you confidently walk through the spacious opening with many others at your side. The gatekeeper's welcome is warm and reassuring, and you are glad that you forsook the narrow way for the broad way. It's so easy to see where you're going because you are in control and you determine your own destiny. You'd be foolish to choose any other way, or would you? Jesus said in Matthew 7:13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Why is the road that Jesus paved for us found by so few? What is it that holds men and women back from entering into the glory of God and eternal life? The answer is, it's the cost. Although there is no monetary fee collected by the gatekeeper to enter the narrow way, it could cost you everything. Many people would gladly pay money to attain the eternal reward offered by the gatekeeper to those who choose the narrow way. But very few will pay the price of forsaking their own life for the life of the gatekeepers. You see, the gatekeeper of the narrow way was beaten beyond recognition and then nailed to a cross. His family 
and his close friends turned their backs on him. He was despised and hated by many, even though he came only to do God's will and usher in the gift of eternal life for all humanity. He was misquoted, he was misunderstood, and he was mistreated. Once for setting a man free from demonic possession, the gatekeeper was labeled a follower of Satan and a deceiver by those known as the religious leaders. The gatekeeper's life was considered by many to be a waste of time. He could have been an earthly king, but instead he chose to be a lowly servant. What a high price to pay for walking in obedience to God. Are you willing to pay the price of obedience? Matthew 10.38 says, Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For those of you with enough courage to continue through the entrance of the narrow way, you must first be willing to humble yourself before the gatekeeper, who is Jesus, the Lord of glory, and repent of your sin. For it was your sin and mine that brought the punishment of death on a cross upon the gatekeeper. Once you have repented, you must relinquish control of your life and your future to the gatekeeper. He must become your Lord and your Savior. The gatekeeper is worthy of this respect and honor because it was with his own blood that he purchased you from death and the grave. Finally, before entering the narrow way, you must shed your old self. With all of its dreams and desires, even as a snake sheds its old skin. And then it must be nailed to the cross that stands before the entrance to the narrow way. As long as you are clothed with your old self, you cannot fit through the opening of the narrow way. And that's a message that's not preached enough. It's not just that you have to shed your old life to enter the narrow way. You can't remain on the path to the narrow way as long as you're clinging to any of the old life. You don't fit. The gatekeeper built the opening and the path of the narrow way in such a way that only those who are willing to nail their own life to the cross and walk in the life of the gatekeeper can enter through and travel down the narrow way. So if you have made the decision to embark upon the journey down the narrow way, take courage and do not fear. The gatekeeper will be with you every step of the way. If you have already begun the journey, remember to pick up your cross daily and nail your flesh to it. You're a new creation born to do the work of God by a spirit. I love Brad. I think that's awesome. So many people try to enter the kingdom and keep part of their own life with them. Well, I love you, Jesus, and I'll do anything for you, but I want to go do this. There's no room for it in the kingdom. The Bible very plainly says, if you don't lose your life in his, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And he said, yeah, but everybody does this a little. Well, keep in mind, it's only a very few who are going to be saved. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Very few. Well, I'm sitting among the few here tonight, this morning. I know that. When we taught Matthew 22 this last Wednesday... The overwhelming point in Matthew 22 about this parable was that many people received the call. The gospel has gone out and is going out to the many, the masses. But only a few are chosen to actually participate in the reward. Many are called and few are chosen. Well, why are there many that are called and that respond to the call? But only a few of the respondees are chosen. It's because they cling to the old self along the way. They don't perform the work that God gave them to do. You remember the parable of the talents? The guy who buried the talents, he was an employee. He was subservient to the master. He called him master. But he did not do what he was called to do. And so he was cut into pieces and thrown outside the kingdom. See, this is how something can look like a sheep, make it all the way to the wedding feast, only to find out it's a goat. 
Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. Don't be fooled. That's not talking about the carnal people that are in the massive uh, denominational churches. That's talking about those that appear to be the elect. That's right. They cast out demons. They did those things. So this morning, we're going to talk about the builders and the building. Because what is incredibly important after Wednesday's service in Matthew 22, you found out people got to the wedding feast. They thought because they received the invitation, because they showed up, time for the reward. But they were missing something. They were missing their wedding clothes. And Revelation 19, among many other places, tells us their wedding clothes were the righteous acts that they were supposed to have performed. If you stand before Jesus empty-handed, not having produced the fruit that He called you to produce, His deposit in you was a waste of time and you will be cut into pieces. Say, oh my God, what are you preaching? Are you telling us that we need to be works conscious? Yeah, I'm absolutely telling you, you need to be works conscious. For the purpose of salvation? Not at all. You work because you're saved. You don't work to get saved. It's like the man in John. He could not get up and carry his mat. Wasn't capable. Couldn't get to the water. Once he encountered Jesus, Jesus healed him. First thing he told him to do was pick up your mat and walk. He didn't work to get saved. He couldn't do that work. But once he was saved, the first thing he was given to do was a task. Well, each one of us have tasks. The reason we're on this topic this morning is because the Kenshins have a task before them, the Piros have a task before them, the Hulls have a task before them, and the Wakefields have a task before them. Each of us has been given a task. It's our job to complete that. And more than that, it's our job to support one another in those tasks. I can look at the Piros' task and say, man, I, I don't know if that's God. I think they're crazy. It doesn't matter. The man with the Spirit is not subject to any other man's judgment. I don't care whether everybody outside of these four walls thinks I'm crazy. I am not subject to their judgment because it's my responsibility to hear from the Spirit of God. You know what their job is? To be supportive of it. I don't say that because I disagree with anybody in here. I'm telling you that our role in the kingdom is to perform our task And to be supportive of others trying to do so. Now, supportive may not mean that you lock arms with them and that you go down the path with them. Supportive may mean that you pray for them, that you encourage them. But one thing we're going to find out on this message of builders and buildings is that our authority in the kingdom, whether you be an apostle or a janitor, is for building and not tearing down. We are a part of a construction crew. We are not a part of a demolition crew. The prophecies this morning about the feet shod with good news and the river that you're supposed to swim in, that you're supposed to dwell in, you know what? How you do that? You refuse to say anything that is not good news. You know? Somebody says, hey, did you see that preacher on TV with the toupee? And it's not good news. So you just don't go there. That's not where your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel are carrying you. You're tempted to dwell in doubt or discontentment or despair or any of those things. No, no, that's not the river that is flowing from the throne. So you do not go there. It's not that it's not a reality. It's not that it's not all around you. That's just part of some demolition crew, not part of the construction crew that you're on. On that note, anybody ever seen Monster House? It's Damon Stern's Monster House. I love the show. I mean, I don't know. I fancy myself something of a carpenter, although it's obvious to everyone that I greatly lack in those regards. But I still enjoy it, you know. I may not be able to participate on NASCAR either, but I can drive a little go-kart, you know. I mean, we all have fun wherever we, we can have fun. Have you noticed that on all of these building shows, though, There is always one member of the build team that causes a problem for all of the other builders. Now, I've noticed something about Monster House. There's like six builders, right? And they vary. They vary. Sometimes there's a welder. Other times there's not welders. Sometimes there's, you know, uh, some uh, industrial arts specialist, you know, who does sculptures and stuff. Other times there's not. The builders are chosen based on their capabilities for that particular task. 
Okay? You are chosen in the kingdom based upon the task and the talents that you have within you. From time to time, I have noticed on that show, they will get into a project. One guy will not carry his load, so he's dismissed. And they bring in somebody else who will. Other times, this one in particular that I'm thinking of, it was not that the guy would not carry his load. It's that that's not what he was designed for. Not his fault. He was drafted. He was chosen. He was there. They wanted him to do electrical work that was beyond him. That's not what he could do. So he went to another job site and they brought somebody in from another job site. In the kingdom, there's this shuffling around. It's not always a bad thing. It's a good thing. There was a time period where I served another church. And my talents were put to use in that place. And then the king of the construction crew said, Now, I want you to build in a different lot. And I've been moved. And each of you are being moved around. Because your talents are useful somewhere. The point is not where you build. It's that you're building and that it be God's building. All of those shows, though, do have... One character in them. And this is what really got my wheels to turning. One character is always in these shows. And he's different every week. That is lazy. That has a bad attitude. That's uncorrectable, incorrigible, defiant, and unskilled. You know? Always. Every week. If there's six of them, one of them is a loafer. You know, while everybody else is working, he's drinking coffee and complaining to the camera because one of his ideas wasn't chosen. This is Tobiah. This is Sanballat. This is Judas. This is all of those people throughout history that have done these things. And you know what? That one person usually creates such disharmony that in this one week of building, they always get down to the last minute and somebody's work wasn't done because somebody couldn't be a team player. Our goal in the kingdom is to never be that person. Never. If it's evident to you that you're a part of the wrong build crew, ask for a reassignment. If you have decided I'm on the right building crew, whether your ideas are accepted, whether you're encouraged, whether you feel up to the task, suck it up and be a part of the team. that's, That's what the kingdom is about because ultimately there was a purpose for you being drafted. In 1 Corinthians 3, I can find my Bible. We're going to hear Mr. Paul talk about this some. What's that? Come on, that's the anointing. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Friends, that's a rhetorical question. It requires an answer. Since there is jealousy and quarreling, are you not worldly? Does anybody want to take a guess as to what the answer is? In the church, I don't care how long we've been born again. How many visions we've seen, how many miracles have followed our lives. If there is jealousy or quarreling, we have just worn a big fool's hat on our head and a sign around our neck that says we're worldly. Now, truth is, everybody has been jealous at some point and everybody's been involved in quarrels, probably within the confines of your own home. (laughs) Okay? But we need to make it our ambition not to do so because we don't have an obligation to the world to live like it, but to Christ, the gatekeeper, to live like Him. So let's recognize that and we'll keep going. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Those are two different guys with two different building crews. And people are drawing up sides and saying, I like the way he builds. And I like the way he builds. That's beside the point. Those guys are just foremen. There is a general contractor above them. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. 
There are people in this world that have come to know about Jesus through me. That does not mean that like an Amway overlord, I have control of their life as a part of my down product line. I'm only a servant through whom they came to believe. And the same is true for any other servant. I'm serving a king and ultimately I'm teaching people to serve a king. You participate wherever you can as the king assigns. Y'all understand what I'm implying there? Okay. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Apparently God is not all that interested in who men are and what they've accomplished. Think of the parable. Mandy, I looked it up for you to read to uh, our brother at, at the work hardening clinic. It says, which of you, if he has a servant, after he's worked all day, when he comes in, won't say, hey, get my food, get my drink. And then, does, does the servant expect the master to praise him? No. He says, I was only doing my job as a servant. He said, the kingdom of God's like that. When you do something for Jesus, your attitude should be, I was only a servant. I don't deserve a reward. We should not be looking for credit in our spiritual bank. We should not be expecting others to reverence us, to honor us, and treat us as if we're somebody for doing the task that God called us to do. See, because all of us have been given a task. We can't glory in one task over another. The electrician on the job has one task. The carpenter has another. The sheetrock person has another. If any one of them doesn't get done, the house doesn't rise like it's supposed to. Find your task and complete it. Do it without complaining and without glorying in your task over someone else's. This is very important. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. There is one purpose for everybody on a job site, and that is to cause the building to rise. My purpose in this church is to cause this church to rise to become what God has called it to become. That's my purpose. Matthew is joining me in that work. That's his purpose. We will accomplish these things from different ways, but we have the same purpose. Each of you in here... Part of your purpose is to see this common goal achieved. Everything that you do in the body should be done with that in mind. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Paul was sure of himself. The revelation and the doctrine he got, he was positive with God's. So he could say, I laid the foundation like an expert builder. It's not off. It's not out of square. It's not within a quarter inch variance. It's like an expert did it. It's perfect. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and The fire will test the quality of each man's work. You have been given a foundation in Christ. God has used apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists to do that. They're worthy of the honor of that position, and that's all. They're servants that did that task. Your job is to build upon that foundation. My job is to help you build upon the foundation which you've been given. There is coming a fire, not for the lost, for the saved, to test the quality of the work that you've done. Your building project is the fruit of your life. It's what you have done as directed by God and accomplished. Well, how do you have hay, wood, straw, silver, gold, all of those things, if you're doing what God directed you to do? It's the degree to which you got it right. See, sometimes God says... Go to Arkansas. I want you to be there and do this and that. And you say, ah, well, he said go to Arkansas, but I don't know about doing this and doing that. I think I'm going to do this. Well, 
that might fall somewhere around hay or straw. Where if you accomplish some of it, it might fall around bronze. Accomplish more of it around silver. Or you might be an expert craftsman that, that accomplishes it with gold. But there's a day when the quality of your work will be tested. If what he has built survives, he will receive reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now, we've heard that applied to suicide. We've heard that applied to a lot of things. Put it in its context. You have a foundation within you. You're supposed to be building upon that until the work of your life is completed and you are a complete temple for God. And there's a reason. When Jennifer Hall completes the work of her life and Gary Kenshin completes the work of his life and Janice Kenshin completes the work of her life and so on and so forth and you have built the way that God told you to according to the architect, then you are all joined together. And become a holy temple for the Lord that rises to meet Him in the air. This is what the Bible teaches. That word destroy is a very, or derived right from the word defile. Defile. You can defile your work. You know how you defile work? God sent me here to start this church, right? So I started, but I've become discouraged along the way. So as people come in, and I'm in the place that God sent me to, I'm doing the work God sent me to do. But my attitude is slightly off kilter because I'm discouraged. And so I begin to poison people with little hints and thoughts like, oh, doing God's work can be very hard. You know, not everybody, not everybody makes it. You know, I was talking with a gentleman the other day that was called to start a church in this area. And he was wearing discouragement like a garment around him. And as we began to speak encouragement to him and tell him about it, he clung like a man would wrap his garment around him and pull tight because he's cold. You know, people will feed their insecurities. They will nurse their wounds so that they wear them like a badge of honor. Or rather, a badge of dishonor. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. We'll explore this topic a little further. Everybody in Ephesians 2? This is a really familiar passage. So, you know that it's by the grace that we've been saved. This not of yourself, but it's through faith. It's the gift of God. But there's a purpose for it. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is the guy who prepares the plans in advance of a job site called. He's an architect. He draws all of the plans. Y'all are fixing to start a school. You consulted architects to determine where walls would go, where things would happen. They were prepared in advance. And then the draft goes out for the team members. So that when the team members get there, their job is to consult the plans. And then to perform according to their ability the actual work. And you know what? The workers were trained by God for that purpose. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good work prepared in advance for you to do. Each one of you is an individual construction project. All of you collectively are another construction project. And then the church of God worldwide is yet another. What we're doing is we're building houses, we're building cities, and we're building the nation of God. And all have to work seamlessly. If Sugarland and Missouri City and Houston all don't connect in their power lines, if they don't connect in their telephone lines and in their plumbing systems and all of those things, you have little individual kingdoms that can never function as a whole. The church of God's not like this. It must flow seamlessly. It's all connected with one thing, God's Spirit. And it's great. He doesn't need power lines. He doesn't need conduit. He can move through any willing vessel. 
Therefore, actually, we're going to skip to 19 because I don't want to just read to y'all a bunch. Consequently, you are no longer for, foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. When the architect laid out the plans, he put a scale on the plans. He said, one inch is equal to one foot, whatever the scale is. You know what our scale is? It's the life of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. If you want to be a member of his body, you must be like him. He is the cornerstone. I learned many things from Buzz Tremaine. One of them is just a construction principle. When we were building flooring one day at the Kinchin's house, he said, Eric, if you don't do anything else, pop a line on the floor. Make everything square to that one line. You have to have something that everything else is square to as a, a point of reference. That's what a cornerstone is. If you're building something, you put one stone there. Everything else is square to that one stone. In our lives, when you think, man, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel a peace here. Is this right or not? You need to look at the life of Jesus and compare yourself to him as the cornerstone. Say, yeah, I'm at a right angle to him. I'm doing good. Although peace has left me because my flesh is nervous, the word of God is with me, so I will accomplish it. And then you find the peace of God rush in. Built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Get this. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Part of being built up to rise to become this temple is you in your own life acting like Jesus. As you begin to act like Jesus, you will produce the fruit that Jesus requires, which is usually work in other people's lives. This is how we build in our life, we build in others, and we're all being united together. Whether the Kensians are in Texas or in Louisiana, the goal is that they build in their lives what God has told them to build. That they affect other people in the way that God has told them to. Whether we are in Texas or Louisiana, this is our goal. Because one day, these buildings, these respective cities, will grow together to become part of the nation that is the holy temple of God. In fact, we will rise to meet Jesus in the air. Because we will have been built upon the foundations of the apostles, layer by layer by layer, until we meet Him at His returning, and the head sits on the shoulders of the body. This is how we can be seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Turn to Hebrews 11. It's that light back there that's hot. Hebrews 11. I didn't have architectural plans when I built the church. It was pretty much... That, that's right. We'll, after dinner, the buffet line will be under that light after church. Hebrews 11, uh, look at verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, I've read this for years and not thought about what that meant. He wasn't looking for a city like you would look for a city of Houston. He, what he was looking for was that construction project that had gone on in people's lives where God had been the architect and the builder. How is he both? He's the architect because he laid out the plans in advance. He's the builder because it's his spirit working in you that causes the building to take place, that empowers the building to take place. So if you want to know this thing that I've built in my life, when you look back at your life, was it hay or wood or stubble or straw or was it gold or silver? The determining factor? 
is did God encourage the building of it? Did He empower the building of it? Or was it the work of my own arm? You want the garments at the wedding feast so that you're not found to be naked? Those righteous acts of the saints? Those garments are the things that you did as God empowered you to do. David one time did, well, David many times. David killed Goliath. That kind of starts his career, right? Did God empower him to do that? Absolutely. He said, hey, you're coming against me with your armies. I'm coming against you with the armies of the living God. He cut off the guy's head for God. That can make you lose your peace, couldn't it? God, you want me to hack his head off. You know, what do you... <laughs> That's something that he accomplished for God. But another time, David gets nervous, right? And he starts thinking about, boy, I wonder if I have enough soldiers. And in one place in the Bible, it says the Lord incited him. And in another place, it says Satan incited him. Well, the answer is that David was in a place where he was trying to determine whether he had what he needed to build for God. And he leaned upon his own arm. That's, that's wood. That's stubble. He took a census to determine whether or not it could be done when the whole time the point is it could only be done through God's strength. That's why I think it's the book of Zechariah or Zephaniah, one of the two, and I think it's Zechariah. It says, not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you two are going to Baton Rouge to begin a school because you have all of the gifting that it takes to begin a school and you have everything in yourselves, it'll fail. It'll fail miserably. But if you're going because you feel the Spirit encouraging you, you have been downloaded with the architectural plans from God. He says, build according to this pattern. And you feel that His strength is encouraging you that way. You can't fail even if you don't have any of the skills that it takes. All you have to do is stay in the flow of His Spirit. And if everybody in the world comes against you and says, you can't, it'll fail, this will never make money, and I can't believe that we were depending on it, will not matter. Because God has encouraged you to do it. And in the end, it'll be silver refined by fire. Likewise, if you guys get here and everything that you'd hoped it would be, it's not. It will not matter if God has inspired your steps here. Because He will strengthen you. He will give you what you need to overcome the enemy. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3.8 says that. But this doesn't come without a fight. And you know where the fight usually comes from? Like Monster House. Members of your own build team. Samson was never whipped by one Philistine. Not at any time, not ever. Samson was whipped because his own people kept binding him, tying him up, and handing him over to have his eyes put out. What happens is two people work together. One decides they don't like the other one's work. So they begin to go tell the rest of the build team, you know, he does shoddy work. He says he's a finished carpenter, but I can see nail heads sticking out. You know? And before long, the poor guy can't do anything right. And he can either take that as, as constructive criticism and keep a good attitude or all, or he can begin to criticize the other person's work. And before long, these people that are supposed to be following the architect's plans aren't doing anything but squabbling amongst themselves. Meanwhile, the building is not rising. The goal is that the building rise. It will. It will rise. Because we will nail our old selves to the cross and do whatever it takes to make it down that narrow way. When you think of the narrow way and you're picturing that in your mind, you see the wooden doorpost, right? And you see flesh and blood nailed to it because people couldn't get in without knocking off their flesh and blood. i got news for you. It's a little wider at the beginning than it is at the end. Because you must decrease for Him to increase. You think it was hard to get in the door. No, it's hard to stay on the path because it gets narrower all the time, requiring more of your flesh to pull away, more of your blood to be spilled so that you can walk as empowered by the Spirit. Our city, our building has got to have God as the architect. You know, somebody asked me recently, what are you doing to promote your church? I said, excuse me? What are you doing to promote your church? And I realized, before we even went there, he's talking about, what is your marketing plan? 
I said, you know, it's funny because I'm a marketing director. All I've done is marketing for years and years and years, and yet I have no plan and no ambition to market a church. You know, you remember the brother said to Jesus, Jesus' brothers, by the way, if any of my Catholic friends ever get this CD, Jesus had brothers, and this is a good example of earthly, natural brothers that Jesus had. He said, oh, nobody who wants to be a public figure uh, hides out in Galilee while there's a feast going on in Jerusalem. Jesus said, for me, the time's not right. For you guys, any time is right. Then later, he went ahead and went. <laughs> but he wasn't going to let them direct his steps to go. There's a way that the world would build the church. They're going to buy television time. They're going to send out flyers. All those, And I may do some of those things. But this is the only... They're going to go get a loan. They're going to do all... Of, I am building according to the plans. And you know what? I don't have them all yet. So is that scary, y'all? I've only seen a little glimpse of the corner of one side of the blueprints. I'm hoping to be able to get a bigger perspective as we go. And I'm trusting that the gatekeeper that, that Brad wrote about... Loves me enough to show me that if he wants me to complete it. I can only do the part of the plan he's shown me. Don't get scared when you don't know what's going on. There are times when he just says, park your boat there. I'll show you later where to throw the nets. You can throw the nets all day and night without his direction. And you just wear yourself out. Some of y'all look like you're in pain. Is, is this not good? All right. Good. Turn to First uh, Peter with me. First Peter's always the guy, or this is always the epistle I think of when I'm on this subject. And it's First Peter 2. It's just because he puts it pretty bluntly. We're going to start in 2.1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Why would you even have to write this to Christians? That's the truth. Those who are supposed to live like Christ often live the furthest from Him. Have to rid yourself of all of these things. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Get this. The building rising. What are you supposed to do in your salvation? You're supposed to grow up. My son Judah is now seven. I'm building his fort out there. Y'all may have seen it. It is above our rooftop. <laughs> As I hammer, I've got to hit a nail once or twice and I can sink it. Judah has to hit that nail like 25 times to get it to sink. So his responsibilities, building with dad, building his fort, is I just leave a little bit of the nail head sticking out and I let him work on those, right? But as he grows up in his calling, he ought to be able to handle more than that. Every year he ought to be able to handle more than that. Till eventually he's a master craftsman. Now I'm speaking spiritually, of course. When you are first born again, your only responsibility may be the nail heads. But as you grow up in your salvation, you ought to be doing more to cause this building to rise, even as you rise. Because our goal is all to rise from the dead even. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Why do you grow up in your salvation? Because you've tasted that the Lord is good and He's in the heavenly realms and you are straining for Him. As you come to Him, the living stone, that cornerstone, rejected by men but chosen by God, precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. What are you being built into? A spiritual house. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. If your building in your life relies upon that cornerstone that has already been laid... At the mountain of the Lord's brightness, which is what Zion means. If you're building according to that pattern, you will never be put to shame. Because it's a true pattern. It's right. It's the standard you're supposed to live by. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So what on earth does that mean? Well, they wouldn't build with him. 
They didn't like the pattern that it laid out. They didn't think that stone was square or true. So instead, it's the stone that's on the very top of their building, crushing it. Or the capstone on God's building, both laying the foundation and the completing work, the Alpha and the Omega. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. I'd love to read the rest of that, but I don't want to run out of time here. Turn with me to Luke. One thing I love about the Gospel of Luke, and John's my favorite, but Luke's my favorite of the synoptic Gospels, because he basically writes about everything that the other two write about, but in in greater detail. It's almost as if he appreciates it more after not having been there. His goal, as he wrote to Theophilus, was to write an orderly account. Like, guys, you who didn't get to see this stuff, let me write down everything that I can possibly gather together about it. It's good. He paints such beautiful pictures. In Luke 6, starting in verse 46, Why do you who call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. Guys, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be building. There's, if you're not building at all, you're going to be disqualified from Christ. That's, you know, that's like the fig tree that produced no fruit and got the curse. It's like a, a cloud that produces no rain. Crops that produce, or fields that produce no crops. All of these things in the Bible speak of somebody who is lost salvation, not performing the intended process. But amongst those of us who build... You must put God's Word to you. His revelation that He's given you into practice. Otherwise, you're like somebody who's building, but they're putting it on a foundation that will never last. When storms come, when the tests come, when fire comes, it will not last. If God told you to go march in one of those abortion protests, then it should not matter that you're thrown in jail. It should not matter if people beat you or persecute you. It shouldn't matter if you lose your house, your wife, your cars, your kids. If that is what God told you to do, then no cost is too high because just to enter into this construction crew, you died all of your desires. So when God tells you to do something, you have to make sure you heard from God and then you are like somebody who was built upon a rock. There's not a storm on earth that can tear you off of your purpose. But when you're unsure that you heard from God, or when you waver in your hearing from God, you're like somebody building on shifting sand. One day it looks like a house, the next day it looks like a pile of trash. And everybody around you will mock you. And you do harm to the kingdom of God. Because I said, did not that man say he was building a house? And it looks like a pile of wood, did it? We must make sure that our building plans come from the architect. Furthermore, our building strength and skills come through the builder, which is God. That's why he's the architect and the builder. Now, I haven't been certain of a lot of things I've done in life. This is not one I'm guessing at. The rock, the foundation here, is God. That's why it doesn't bother me. Actually, it does. It hurts. It bothers me. But it's why it will not make me sway if others don't agree. They've got their own field to worry about. I've got mine. I love them enough to see other people sent to their fields. He said, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. You want to know if somebody is a mature Christian? Watch them in a storm. If their house falls apart every time there's a storm, they don't know what it is to read the plans from God and experience God's building through them. All they know what it is to do is lean on their own arm. And friends, if a chariot, if a horse is a vain hope of salvation, what do you think your own arm is? And yet that's what most Christians do. Their walk is confined to what their bank account will allow. Their walk is confined to what friends and family think. 
You'll never make it in the kingdom like that. And we weren't called to that kind of walk. We were kind, called to a reckless abandonment of our own comfort. We were called to an all-out direct assault on the enemy without thought of what it will do to you or your family or your life. Because you gave that up. And you know that the guy that called you is good. Have you ever thought about the soldiers that had to invade Normandy on D-Day? How about all those guys on the boat? You had to believe that the purpose was noble. You furthermore had to believe that the people who were giving you orders had some sense in it. Otherwise, it would look like you were just being slaughtered. That's why Jesus says He sent you as lambs to the slaughter. That's what it looks like. But you know that your purpose is noble. And you know that the direction that you're being given, although it looks hazardous to you, looks like you can't survive it, that there is a greater purpose in it than your own life and your own comfort. How else do you ever think you could sell everything you have and move to a foreign country? How else is it that you think that you could see somebody raised from the dead? Or any of the things of God? It has to come at a place where you are no longer questioning your own comfort and security. You're only trusting that the purpose is noble and that He who gave you the directions was right. So we don't have the right to weigh how things will affect us. We don't. Because that was never figured into the plans. Nobody goes to the electrician and says, Hey, according to the plans, this was supposed to be wired and this was supposed to be wired and this was with concern about whether or not it's going to hurt the electrician's knees to crawl in the attic. Or whether there's risk that he might get shocked if he doesn't do it right. See, we are servants. It doesn't matter how it affects us. What matters is that the house gets built and it rises. And... We also have this promise from the architect. If you seek first the kingdom, the building project, he'll add to you what he needs, what you need. If you don't worry about your own life, he'll take care of it for you. And he'll do a much better job than you could. He's, he's done that in my life. I mean, I was looking at Matthew and I, both of our lives, and he's smarter than I am and better, better educated than I am. But neither one of us did this the world's way. Neither one of us went to the schools they said we should go to. Neither one of us followed the curriculum that we were told to go to. And I, at one point, was told the best I could ever do was to go buy a lawnmower, throw it in the back of my car, and cut people's houses, their grass, in the country club of Louisiana, and serve them as a maid. I'll tell you what, I wasn't too proud to do that. But I didn't think it was God's will for my life. I would say that even from a natural standpoint, I'm doing substantially better than that now. And you know what? So is Matthew. We've done it God's way. Have we got it right always? No, certainly not. But the overall project has been directed by God. You know, in construction, half of, half of carpentry is hiding the mistakes that you've made. You know, learning how to cover them up. You know how you do that in the kingdom? See, because there are times you're going to bend the nail. It doesn't go in straight. You know how you hide that kind of stuff in the kingdom? You freely admit it to the general contractor. And His love will cover over it. See, His love is like that three-quarter inch putty. You know? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and we'll be done here in ten minutes. Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And I could keep going. What's he talking about? Y'all know I've taught on this a billion times. He's talking about what? Glorified body. Do you remember that 2 Corinthians 15 says that as star differs from star... So, as so, also your heavenly bodies will differ one from another? Well, what do you think makes them different? They're like any other house. They're like any other heavenly dwelling. It depends upon the work that you put into it. If you build with precious stones during this life, meaning that you've heard from God, you do what He says do, regardless, your heavenly body, your eternal house, will reflect that. A better resurrection like Paul's. But if you're a shoddy carpenter, if you only follow the plans when somebody's looking, if you take the shortcut, 
If you do whatever it takes to make you comfortable instead of the job work right, your heavenly body will reflect that. You might look naked in the kingdom to come. Or naked. Naked. Our bodies will reflect the work that was done. We don't have time to read it, but Revelation 19 and Revelation 21... He says, come, I'll show you the bride. And then he describes these foundations with the apostles' names on them. He describes all of these precious... It was the work that had gone into the church. When he goes to show him the city of God, he's showing him people. And they're represented by precious stones. Because the work of their life was that. You didn't get to any of the gates when he says pearl and, and uh, chrysolite and jasper. Did you ever see one that said, you know, hey... Or stubble or straw. No, it doesn't make it into the kingdom. It got burned up. It didn't make it through the tribulation. It didn't make it through all of those things. If many are called and only a few are chosen, and then, alright, so we, we've called it down from there, and then there comes a day when it says, the love of most grows cold. We're talking about the remnant of the remnant here. See, what you do has, something has to survive so that we can lock arms and become the temple of God. If you don't have anything to show for it, what could you contribute to that temple? All you ever hear that is applied to suicide. You know, oh, well, you're God's temple, you know. It has to do with you taking the work of your life seriously, performing the calling seriously. It's not just saying, don't kill yourself. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. We'll turn to two more scriptures and quit. These are just a couple attitudes I want you to get. In 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 7, you are looking only on the surface of things. That could be a prophetic word for the entire American church today. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. God gave the Apostle Paul, who had the calling of writing two-thirds of the New Testament, who at the resurrection will probably outshine everybody that you have ever known because he followed the plans to the point where his body bared the marks of Christ. Through prisons, shipwrecks, beatings, endangerments of wild animals, he would not swerve from... I tell you what, in Acts 19, his brothers in Christ begged him, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God says if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. He said, man, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but to die. He made up that his mind of that the day he was called. It didn't matter whether it required his life. It didn't matter whether it required his body to be broken. He was called and therefore he was going. That has to be our attitude. Would you think he would have a lot of authority or a little authority? A lot, right? And he said it was given to me for one purpose. Building you up. Craftsmanship. Working. Causing your building to rise. Not to pull you down. I tell you what. I am through receiving any words from anybody outside of this church that have a pulling down effect. And you should be free from that in your lives. If somebody says something that's useful for causing your building to rise, building you up, Praise God, apply it. If it's not, you consider it as dung like everything else that gets thrown out. Because if Paul didn't have the authority to tear you down, then neither does anybody else. Now that doesn't mean that it's not a corrective word. You, part of building your house is cutting off things that don't belong there. Trimming. Carpentry. You need to discern that and apply it wherever it goes. All anybody is to you is a servant of the Lord. Now, certain servants of the Lord, because of their calling, they're worthy of honor and respect. But ultimately, your job is to see that your building rise. And the things that you apply from others have to do with your building rising. 
Now, that's others. Let's talk about you. If Paul didn't have the authority to tear people down, what makes you think you have the authority to do it? What makes me think I have the authority to do it? Say, yeah, well, you're stupid. Will that cause their building to rise? No, then I don't have the authority from God to say it. Say, oh, well, that may be well and fine, but I think that's ridiculous. You know, if that did not come from the Spirit of God, and there's a great chance it didn't because it doesn't seem to line up with the cornerstone, I don't have the authority to say it. You know, can we judge or not judge? Well, this all flows from the same vein. If the architect told you what to say and how to say it, you can do it. If he didn't, you can't. We do not have authority to tear people down only to build up. Only to build up. Ephesians 4, and we're going to close. It'll be a 55-minute sermon. That'd be the first time y'all ever heard one of those from me. Mom and Dad's last one, I figured I'd try to do one right. 429. Y'all, this is totally in line with both prophecies that you got today. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Every time you see that word building up now, you think of the construction project in their life and ultimately the whole building rising to meet Jesus. The only thing we need to say to one another, period, is what is helpful for building them up. See, criticisms that aren't, aren't related to the building project of their life, it's not needed. Doubts, discouragements, if it's not related to the building project of their life, it's not needed. Now, we shouldn't give those. Here's the other side of that message. You shouldn't receive them either. If people are telling you things that are not helpful to the building project, you let it roll off you like water off a duck's back because they don't have authority from God to say those things to you. In closing here, what we want to do is we want to make sure that Jan and Gary are thoroughly blessed and that their building projects of their life rise to meet Jesus as they join other laborers in another state that the work they're doing receives the blessing of the architect and is performed according to the plans. Now that the P-Rows are here, we want to make sure that all of our work together fits seamlessly into what the architects told us to do. The halls are coming to live right around the corner, next door also. We need to make sure that all of us, what we say, what we do, is useful for causing this building to rise. And friends, I, I, here's one other thing i just got to say. It should be just a foregone conclusion, but I have to say it. Nothing else in your life, period, bar none, whether we're talking about retirement, food, diapers, nothing else is as important as the building project God's given you to do. Every other thing is secondary to it and should be treated that way. You say, well, I don't know about that. God would want you to take care of your family. Yeah, He'll provide for you the way to do all of those things if the building project is first. Does that make sense? Say, oh, well, you're the pastor. It's easy for you to say that. I've seen people neglect their families and all. Well, if they did, they weren't listening to the architect. I've been there. Weren't listening to the architect closely enough because he will provide time for his laborers to eat, to sleep, to have clothing, to take care of their kids, and all of those things. You know, have you ever heard somebody say they were just whipped, just burned out, tired with ministry? I read where Paul said he labored with all of Jesus' strength, which worked so powerfully in him. So if we're burned out in ministry, if we're just plumb whipped from ministry, we're laboring in the wrong strength. That's not what the architect... And I've been there. I've done it. You know, I've worked 70 hours. I've, I've prepared for 40 and, and preached three and four messages and counseled with people and all of those things. And some of it was according to the plan and a whole lot of it wasn't. And my family suffered. He will show you all of those balances, but you've got to put the building project first. Jobs, nothing else comes close. Otherwise, you will spend your whole life weighing out what the king's told you to do versus the cost to you. And you remember what Brad wrote? Most people don't even enter the narrow way because of the cost. 
As that wall, that hallway continues to wedge down closer and closer and closer, squeezing you more and more, a lot of people just start to back up. They're shrinking away and they run out. We're not going to be like that. Y'all lay your hands on the kitchens and uh, we are going to bless them. Y'all, those are my parents. I'm going to miss them. And yet I'm excited that they're going, you know. I watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ. I loved it. And everybody here knows I was concerned ahead of time because of the Catholic influence in the movie. And I was concerned that Mary would be portrayed in a way that was unwholesome. And I don't think anybody that has a pure heart will get that out of the film after seeing it. I mean, there were a couple tiny little things. But you know something that was impressed upon me? Think about Mary. Well, she's watching her son be beaten and his life being pulled from his body, she also remembered her dreams and her plans for him. She remembered the times that, you know, he stubbed his toe and she comforted him. And those, those real earthly kind of things. It is a selfish, selfish thing for us to see people we love and we desire our will for them instead of God's will for them. You know, people say, well, I know it's God's will for you to go, but I sure wish you would stay, you know. Man, those people need to get right before they get in trouble. And I won't be that way. I just don't want to. I want them to stay with all of my heart. But I want more so God's will. When we're all pressed in a garden like Gethsemane, what should come out is that phrase Jesus ended with, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. That's how you step on the head of the snake. That's how you see victory. It's that phrase. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. So let's pray there, and uh, we're going to close the service in the tape here, and we're going to pray for my parents. Jesus, we sure love the Kenshins. Lord God, we pray over their feet that they'd be directed by You. We pray over their chest that the breastplate of righteousness would be upon them and deflect those fiery darts. Lord, in their hands that they would hold the shields of faith and the sword of the Spirit upon their head, that there would be the helmet of salvation around their waist, the belt of truth, and Lord, that their feet would be shod with the preparation that comes from the peace of the Gospel. Lord, that these two warriors would advance your kingdom, that they would accomplish all that you've called them to do. And Lord, that on the foundations that are at King's Harvest, they would cause a school to rise. Lord, a school that trains children for ministry, that trains children to walk in your ways. Lord God, a a school that's beneficial to the church in every way. I pray that they would work under the direction of your servant, Buzz, that they had received correction and encouragement from him. Lord, that they'd be submissive to you through him. And mighty God, that they would have years of fruitful service there at that place. I pray for health in my father's body, health in my mother's body. In the name of Jesus, life-changing ministry releases, encourages, and commits them to that work. Lord, we'll love them always. We'll never speak a harsh word, only good, encouraging Building up things to do. In the name of Jesus, we give you glory. Amen. Amen.